just before he is tragically murdered, Ben is having a conversation with his nephew, Peter. Peter had just used his newly discovered powers as Superman, Spider-Man, to beat up a class bully. And Uncle Ben tells Peter Parker, just because you can beat him up doesn't give you the right to. Then he leans in closer and says the most famous line in the 2002 movie. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. But Uncle Ben wasn't the first to teach that principle. In the 1948 television show, Superman, Clark Kent's adopted father tells him, quote, because of these powers, your speed and strength, you have a great responsibility. And if we leave the world of the nonfiction, President Teddy Roosevelt wrote this in a letter in 1908. I believe in power, but I believe that responsibility should go with power. A young Winston Churchill stated, quote, Our responsibility in this matter is directly proportionate to our power. Where there is great power, there is great responsibility. But Winston Churchill may have heard that from a member of Parliament, William Lamb, back in 1817, who proclaimed this, quote, The possession of great power necessarily implies great responsibility. And in 1793, the Committee of Public Safety in France wrote this during the French Revolution, quote, The representatives must understand that a great responsibility is the inseparable result of a great power. You're getting the idea that this has been around for a while. How about the Bible? In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus is explaining a parable to his disciples, and he says this, quote, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And even before the New Testament, there's a famous legend called the Sword of Democles. It's about a courtier who raved about the power and wealth of King Dionysius about 400 years before the New Testament. The king suggested to his courtier that they switch places for a day if he wanted so much to enjoy the the, the pleasures of the kingship. And so uh, Democles quickly and eagerly accepted the king's proposal. The king, uh, the, the, he then sat on the king's throne and, and he was surrounded by countless luxuries that day. He, there were beautifully embroidered rugs and there were fragrant perfumes and the most select of foods and piles of silver and gold and, and servants, beautiful attendants waiting on, on every need, hand and foot. But Dionysius the king had arranged that a sword should hang directly above Damocles' throne, hung by a single hair from a horse's tail, to give a real sense of what it's like to be king. When he realized that there was a sword hanging above him by a hair, Damocles begged the king to allow him to quit 
his king for a day. Realizing that with great power comes great responsibility. And Dionysius, by the way, the king, a very harsh ruler, was eventually demoted twice and finally exiled in shame to guess where? The city of Corinth, Greece. Last Sunday, Paul taught the Corinthians this same lesson. God gave these gifts of the Spirit, these supernatural empowerments to the church for the common good, the building up of the body of Christ. Sometimes, unfortunately, you and I both know that sometimes people think of the church as nothing more than a voluntary group, a club, where we can join or quit whenever we feel like it, just like we do all the other parts of our lives, the YMCA, the health club, our political hobbies. But the church is not merely a list of names on a membership roll, is it? The members of Christ Church are to assemble each Lord's Day to hear Christ's Word, to participate in the ordinances as Christ had given them to us, to exercise the gifts of the Spirit given to His church by Jesus Christ, and to participate in the life of the local church, all for the common good, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in today's text, Paul really drills down on this idea. This idea of belonging. And that the powerful gifts given to his church are not for hoarding. And they're certainly not for boasting. They're for building up the body. So let's work on these verses this morning. Allow the Spirit to speak to us as he did the Corinthians. I want to try to structure this in, in four parts today, and I'll, I'll move quickly if you listen quickly. Uh, the first, we'll look at verses 12 and 13, and just think about the expression, you're in, you're in. Paul begins his discussion of Christ's body, the church, in this way, verse 12, for just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Bodies composed of many different parts, many different members, each with vastly different functions. Legs, for instance, play a very different role than our eyes, but both are very important. Although the members are different, they have different purposes, Paul says there is a unity here that rises above all the differences. What is that? Paul puts it this way. So it is with Christ. One body. Back in chapter 1, Paul wrote this, verse 30, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Because all believers are in Christ. We're currently united to Jesus. Because of that, all believers are also members of Christ Jesus body his spiritual body that means that there is both a unity one body and a diversity many different members in Christ church 
Next, Paul tells us how this happens. How does this unity with all of this diversity happen? It happens through baptism. Look at verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Each one of the Corinthian Christians. Notice the emphasis here Paul gives on that. Two times it says all. All of us. We all were. We all were. Regardless of what they were before they came to faith. Jew, Greek, slave, free. All of them. All of us are baptized in the Holy Spirit into Christ's body. Now, there's something you need to understand about this term, baptism. It's a familiar term to us. Usually, when we think of baptism, we think of water in a tank and someone getting dunked, right? Well, this baptism is is a different baptism. It's a spirit baptism. And every time in the New Testament where being baptized in the Spirit comes up, except here... It's in reference to John the Baptist. Remember him? John the Baptist, back in in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 33, he said this, Jesus, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Someone baptizes you. John says, I'm going to baptize you with water. But he, this guy I'm about to baptize with water, Jesus, He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says here, we were all baptized into one body, the question is, who baptized us? And the answer is, according to John the Baptist, Jesus. Jesus plunged us, that's what baptism means, plunged us into, plunged us under, fully immersed us in, the Holy Spirit. And that in turn united us with his body, the church. But then we could also say, because of that other phrase in the verse, that we all drink of one spirit, not only does Jesus plunge us into the spirit, we could also say Jesus plunges the spirit into us. He makes us drink of the Spirit. So Paul's opening message in this section is simply this. If you are in Christ, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that He died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day, if you're trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior, no one else, no good works, no church, only Him. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, Paul says, you're also in the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit, you're in the body. If you're in the body, you're in. Congratulations. You're in. Notice next, second phrase, verses 14 to 20. You belong here. You belong here. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. There's one body we enter through spirit baptism, but that body has many diverse members. 
Paul's making the point that no single member of the body can exist on their own. No single member of the body is the body. You can't, no one can say rightly that Brian McCrory is the body. I'm just a member of the body. No individual Christian is the church. We are all together the church. Paul continues to make this point in verses 15 to 16, using the analogy of a body. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make the ear any less a part of the body. These words from Paul seem to be aimed at encouraging those who maybe feel like they didn't measure up to those with more visible gifts, more public gifts, more spectacular gifts. You know, your pinky toe might not seem like much, but cut it off or stub it. See what happens. It's the same way in the church, isn't it? Where would we be without those with what? you may consider to be insignificant gifts, menial gifts. There are many people in our church, just like there was in Corinth, just like there is in every church, who quietly serve others, prefer to do so under the radar, out of the spotlight. But I guarantee they miss a Sunday or two or three, and we realize how much they actually do. These are the ones who pray without ceasing, who visit the sick, the shut-ins, the ones who take meals to share with others, who set up and tear down things that you never see, who run the sound system behind a giant wall, and so on. They work behind the scenes. As Paul says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Again, our our place in the body is not a matter of personal status. It's a matter of God's sovereignty. A point that Paul emphasizes in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them. As he chose. The fact of the matter is God has called and equipped every single member of his body with various gifts as he sees fit. It's God who determines which of the Corinthians are the feet and the hands, the eyes, the ears. Every member of the church, every gift that God gives these members is important to the well-being of the whole body. And this brings Paul back to a discussion of that unity and diversity again of the body. Look at 19 and 20. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Right? It's like that... uh, What's that show, uh, uh, Monsters, Inc., where the guy goes around like a big eye? 
You know what I'm talking about? Who is that? Billy Crystal does that voice? It's, it's that, that giant eye that goes around. If, if, that, if, if the eye was the body, if, if it all was a single member, you, you'd look ridiculous. You wouldn't function like a normal body is designed to function, right? So, as it is, Paul says, there are many parts, yet one body. He's really drilling this down. I mean, you get in the, he said this three times now. Do you get the idea? No matter how important any individual part of that body is by itself, it does not make up the entire body. We are all different and all together under one head, Jesus. We all belong. That takes us to 21 to 26. Here's a third thing that hopefully will encourage you today. Not only do you belong, but you are needed. You are needed. Paul changes focus here from those with maybe less spectacular gifts to those who are given more public and more noticeable gifts. He goes from offering words of encouragement to those who who may feel inferior to offering words of caution and maybe even a gentle rebuke to those who might feel superior because of more visible gifts. Notice verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Those with more spectacular gifts, more public gifts, more visible gifts, must not look down upon those what they think have lesser gifts. An eye can't look down on the hand. The head can't say to the feet, get lost. We don't need you. Those with spectacular gifts need those with less spectacular gifts. Because they're all part of the same body. We need everybody. Here's the truth. The members of the Corinthian church and the members of Heather Hills Baptist Church cannot get along without these members. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Switching from the negative to the positive, Paul says the weaker members in in these examples that he just gave, the feet and the ears, are every bit as indispensable to the body as the heads and the eyes. The word that Paul uses for weaker here comes from a word that, that is often used meaning sick, sickly. Paul does not speak of these folks with weaker gifts as just an addition to the body. Well, it's nice that you're here, you know. We don't need you, but we see that you're attached. You know, that's nice. Paul doesn't speak of them that way. He says they're indispensable. Can't do without them. This becomes clearer when we think about how we treat our own bodies. Look at verses 23 and 24. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, 
giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. We dress up our feet with fancy shoes, right? We cover our unpresentable parts, probably a reference to our sexual organs, so as to be modest and to give honor. But our presentable parts, the parts that you see, the parts that stand out the most, get no extra special treatment. Although in our culture, it's hard to imagine any part of the body exposed to public view that doesn't get any some kind of treatment. All the parts are honored. This is the point that Paul's trying to make. All the parts are honored. Why? Glad you asked. Verse 25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The goal of Paul's discussion here is to point out how serious division in the body really is. All parts need to have equal concern for the others. If one part of the body suffers, all other parts of the body will likewise suffer. You know, we put out... uh, emails several times a week we put things out on facebook and sometimes we even make phone calls if if there's something urgent that comes up you know there's a reason that we tell you that somebody's suffering or that someone's sick or that someone's in the hospital or that someone's lost a job or that someone needs help we you may read that email and say ah, yeah that person sits on the other side of the room i don't really know them They're not really in my social circle. Moving on. Oh, no, friends. No, 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 no. When one member suffers, we all suffer. We all suffer. This is a mindset. This is a way of living, a way of flourishing. We all suffer. On the other side, if one part of the body is honored... We all rejoice. We're all honored. All body parts share a common source of life. That's why the members of the local church, we have to learn to watch out for our fellow Christians who are suffering, who are in some sort of need. A kind word, a thoughtful note, a meal, sometimes some yard work. Some babysitting. So all all those kinds of things go a long way to remind our brothers and sisters that we're all in this together. And that when one of us suffers, we all do. And let me just tell you too, some of you are very private people. Some of you don't like to be a bother. You know, or... Let people know when you're suffering or when you're in need. Let me just encourage you. Make that phone call. Send that note. Let us know when you're suffering. Let us know when you're in hardship because we need to know because the body is all one. We need to suffer with you. 
We need to labor with you. We need to rejoice with you. We want to know all of it because we're all together. We're all one. There's no justification for using the gifts of the Spirit for anything other than building up the body of Christ. Placed by Christ in His church, His spiritual body, each individual believer is indispensable to the whole. That's why it saddens us when someone leaves our church. When someone moves away. When someone's struggling with the trials of life. That's why it troubles us when someone is experiencing doubt or lacking assurance of salvation or struggling hard against sin or when someone gets sick or loses a job. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. And we also rejoice when one of us rejoices. There's good news as well. The birth of children. New people who join our church family, who profess their faith in Jesus. People get new and better jobs. Some get married. Some graduate from schools and programs. You get the point. Yes, there is suffering and sadness, but there are many reasons to rejoice as well because there is one body with many members. You are needed, every one of you. Finally, let's look at verses 27 to 31. And I want you to just think about the idea, as the Corinthians did, that you're not Paul. You're not Paul. You're not Paul. Paul begins this last section with a summary statement again, verse 27. Now you are the body. He said this four times now. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's the point. Get the point. In the Greek sentence, the word you is placed right at the front of the sentence, very similarly to how the ESV puts it here. It's put there for emphasis. You are the body of Christ. All of you, plural, you are the body of Christ. In verse 28, Paul begins to discuss how some of the gifts of the Spirit relate to different offices within the church. Look at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. He gives us a list. It's similar to a list he gave us over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and it, where it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So it's not a comprehensive list here in Corinthians, but it's a list. And he gives us a list, and it's a list of, 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 of mixed things, isn't it? He begins the list by naming gifted people. Apostles, prophets, teachers. And then he shifts over to gifts themselves. Miracles, healings, helping, etc. The same pattern is followed down in verses 29 and 30. How should we understand this shift? Why is he talking about people and then gifts in these lists? I think the clue for understanding what's going on here is his use of first, second, 
third. Paul wants his readers to pay special attention to the first three items listed. There's a sense of a priority here. The reason for this is not difficult to understand because these are foundational gifts given to the life of the church. All the gifts are important. Now, Paul's not going to contradict what he's already taught, right? All the gifts are important. Every member matters. All of us belong. All of us are needed. Nobody's greater than anybody else. But some gifts play a more central role than others in the church. Apostles, prophets, teachers play an essential role in the founding and the maintaining of a church. Why? Because they proclaim and defend the gospel, which is the very basis of the church's life. Now maybe apostles and prophets are first and second here because as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.20, the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, unquote. Some of the gifts and gifted persons appear here for the first time. It's the first time he's mentioned some of these things. The first persons mentioned here are apostles. To serve as an apostle, as you know, we've talked about before, you had to have at least two qualifications. You had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And you had to have been directly commissioned by him. The apostles are named first because they laid the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. The significant, and by the way, you don't see apostles um, going around in the churches in the New Testament and choosing other apostles to follow them. Much to the chagrin of all the churches in our city that have apostles in them or call themselves apostles. We don't see that outside of the first century. The apostles didn't go around picking other apostles. They went around picking elders and deacons, pastors and deacons to place in churches. But you have apostles listed. Then you have prophets. The the significance of prophets here is that it occupies the second position after apostles. Prophets, of course, spoke with authoritative words to, to guide and direct the church. And the work of New Testament prophets, along with the apostles, as I mentioned, constituted the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. Teachers are listed third, the gift of teaching. It's also referenced in Acts 13.1, Romans 12.7, Ephesians 4.11. It differs from prophecy in that it depends on an explanation of what is already written in the Scripture. So prophets were coming along actually giving Scripture to be written down. Teachers are coming along and explaining what has already been given, what has already been inspired and written down. You'll remember that prophecy was something that was spontaneous. It was directed to specific situations. Teaching, on the other hand, required study and effort to understand and explain what had been given from the Lord. Now, now we, then we shift from offices or roles to gifts themselves. The gifts of miracles and healing follow. The order probably doesn't matter quite as much here, though the placement of tongues at the very end of the list I think is intentional, probably because of what we're going to get into next week. In verses 9 and 10, 
for example, healing is mentioned first instead of miracles. So I don't think the order after um, apostles, prophets, and teachers matters as much. The gift of helping is only mentioned here in the whole New Testament, right here. It's a remarkably practical gift of aiding fellow believers in all kinds of ways. The gift of helping is probably the same gift as what Paul calls serving over in Romans 12, verse 7. The next gift is administrating. It's not a bad translation. It's, it's again, the only time that this term appears in the New Testament, right here. But, it, but it, it, it relates to other terms in the New Testament, one that's used for a pilot, and not Pontius Pilate, but a pilot in, in Acts 27, 11, and also a sea captain in Revelation 18, 17. So it has this idea of leadership and direction. Various kinds of tongues brings up the rear, which we talked about a little last week, meaning other human languages. We'll talk about that more next Sunday. In verses 29 and 30, Paul kind of revisits the list that he just laid out for us, but this time he asks questions, rhetorical questions about the list. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer to a rhetorical question is Rhetorical, right? I mean, it's understood. And the answer here is an obvious no. Paul wanted to be absolutely clear on this. There was no demand, unlike, I should say, the Pentecostal church today, that demands that when you get a second work of the Spirit, what they call the baptism of the Spirit, you must speak in tongues. There is no expectation like that in the New Testament that a person would exercise all of the gifts. In fact, God has arranged matters so that the gifts are distributed in such a way that they're not shared by all equally. We don't all have all the same gifts. It's been distributed as God wanted it to be distributed, as He chose, as He designed. And so, no, we're not all apostles. No, you're not all Paul. No, you're not all prophets. No, you're not all teachers. No, we don't all work miracles. No, we don't all uh, have gifts of healing or speak with tongues or interpret. The section closes with the exhortation, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. We'll pick up the last part of that verse next week. At first glance... This may appear to contradict what Paul's been saying all throughout this text, right? He's saying, one body, many members. Y'all belong. Y'all important. Heads no better than the feet. Hands no better than the eye. And then he says, um, desire the higher gifts. They're like, what in the world? What do you mean, Paul? You've been telling us that even what's considered the lesser gifts gifts, or the more insignificant or the more private, behind-the-scenes gifts are essential to the well-being of the body. They're indispensable, you said, Paul. What do you mean? He obviously doesn't want believers to desire the higher gifts for themselves individually. 
Why, why, why would I say that? Because God, he's already told us, God has assigned your gifts to you intentionally, as he chose, as he designed. So if God's given you a gift or gifts, why would he say, seek something else? Doesn't make any sense. That leaves a more corporate understanding, and I think the right understanding. Paul wants us collectively, as a body, as a church, to desire the higher gifts for our church as a whole. Since we maintain that apostles and prophets have passed from the scene, that leaves teachers. We should desire. Here's what Paul's saying for us. What he was saying in the first century was that you should desire that your church is blessed by the ministry of apostles and prophets and teachers. In our century, he's saying you should be blessed. You should desire that God fills our church with godly men and women who can study the Bible deeply and explain it clearly to others. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, thank God he has done that. And he is continuing to do that. In fact, you may have been alarmed that I mentioned women there, men and women. Brothers and sisters, we need men and women teachers in the church. Not to get up and preach sermons on Sunday morning. That would be disobedient to the Scripture, as we'll get to later in the text. But for for men and women to teach and admonish one another in the church is essential. In fact, this weekend, we have five ladies who are traveling to Chicago to go to a workshop on how to study and teach the Bible, to sharpen themselves, to come back here and use their giftedness more effectively in the church. Praise God. Praise God that he's given us these higher gifts as well. And we should always desire that he does. Not that they're more important than anyone else. But praise God that he's given that to us. You're not Paul. Neither am I. But we are members of Christ's body. Jesus' body. We are in. Praise God for that. We belong to the body. Praise God for that. I don't know how people make it through life without being part of the body of Christ. I don't know. And praise God, we are needed. Every single one of you. You suffer, we suffer. You say, no, you don't. Yes, we do. And if we don't, we should. And we rejoice when you rejoice. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and We'll get ready for our last song here in a minute. Let's think of just a moment or two how we might apply this text to our lives, and then you can continue those discussions afterward in your ABF classes or in your conversations with one another. How do we apply this this very familiar text, important text, to our lives today? Well, think about this first of all. No believer should think that they are more godly or more spiritual based on the gifts they possess. And no believer should think that they are inferior 
if they don't have a certain gift. Think about this. Paul told us, God specifically gave you the gifts that he has. It wasn't a lottery. It wasn't like five, four, eight, six. All right, Bob Ensley, you win the gift of whatever. You do have a gift, right? Yeah, I'm just kidding. He's got lots of gifts. It wasn't a lottery. It wasn't random. It wasn't leftovers. Okay, all the good ones are gone now. Sorry, Christina. You get this one. But don't worry, the pinky toe is okay. It's okay. It's important. No. It was God's choice for you. It was God's choice for you. It's a wonderful gift. God's choice for you. Something else to think about. What if you don't know what your gifts are? Ask a few people who know you well. Ask the people in your ABF class. Ask your pastors. It may be obvious to everybody except you even if it isn't to you. And just because you may be gifted doesn't mean ministry just happens. You should work on developing your giftedness, honing your gifts, sharpening your skills to use them to maximum effectiveness in the body. Something else to think about. A body does not function well without the use of every part. Can we say Paul taught us that today? With great power comes great responsibility. Are you actively involved in building up the body of Christ? And no, I'm not just talking to adults here. I'm talking to students. I'm talking to teenagers. I'm talking to children. I'm talking to everyone who's following Jesus Christ, who's been placed into the Spirit into the body, gifted by God. What are you doing to build up the body of Christ? You need to ask yourself that question. I'll tell you what it does mean. It begins by showing up week after week, both here in the Sunday gathering and showing up in the lives of those who need you. That's a good place to start. And then finally, let me just suggest, again, praise God that we're in the body to start with. Praise God for that. Praise God that Jesus baptized us in the Spirit. Praise God that we're in. But brothers and sisters, let's not forget that there are still many, many, many who are out Will you spread the good news this week about how they can get in? It's so important.